Good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Support for the Arts Section comes from the League of Chicago Theaters. On today's program, I'll catch up with renowned jazz musician and educator Sean Jones to talk about his Dizzy Gillespie project that he's bringing to Chicago. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to review a play about regret and moving forward. And I'll take a closer look at a new place festival that will present several new works later this month. Later in the program, I'll talk to the writer and director of a new indie movie that was filmed at a historic Indiana hotel, and we'll hear from a photographer who specializes in capturing images from abandoned spaces. All that's coming up. Thanks for making some time for arts and culture this morning. Jazz, hip-hop, and tap dance will combine on stage at Symphony Center for a one-night performance that explores the African diaspora through the artistry of jazz legend Dizzy Gillespie. The program titled Dizzy Spells comes from acclaimed trumpeter and jazz educator Sean Jones and his wife and partner Brene Ali. Jones has played with some true legends and was a member of the Lincoln Center Jazz Orchestra. He is currently the artistic director of Carnegie Hall's NYO Jazz Program and is the chair of the Jazz Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University's Peabody Institute. I recently caught up with Jones to talk about his appreciation for Dizzy Gillespie and his relationship with a trumpet luminary with strong Chicago ties. Let's dive right into it. You've been touring with this program, Dizzy Spells, for a few years, and now it's coming to Chicago how do you like to, to describe what this project is? Well, Dizzy Spells is an Afrofuturistic look into the life of Dizzy Gillespie, specifically in the late 50s and the early 60s. At that time, Dizzy Gillespie was really into how the music itself transcended cultures and also how the music uh, with its African roots is there to basically bring people together and expose various human issues around oppression, around uh, trauma that's been passed down from generation to generation, things like that. And so we take some of Dizzy's music and some of our own, and we explore that. And we do that with a unique kind of a instrumentation in that we have tap dance, we have voice, and we also have a, a DJ that will join a, a traditional jazz rhythm section. And so we're, we're really excited about that, and we can't wait to bring it to Chicago. We've been doing it for about four years now, off and on, and it definitely conjures up uh, a lot of emotion in the audience. So we're excited about it. And I was looking at some of your past interviews, and I, I read somewhere that you were given... Uh, two Miles Davis albums at a, at a young age, and so Miles' artistry uh, was a big influence on you. 
How would you describe your relationship with uh, Dizzy's music? Well, you know, ironically, right after I was, I got into Miles at that early age. Dizzy Gillespie was the natural next one, and lucky for, enough for me, there were a few of us when I was younger that were really into the virtuosity <laughs> that uh, Dizzy Gillespie uh, uh, was all about. Fast tempos and high notes and things like that. That got us excited as young kids. But later on, I started to realize that Dizzy Gillespie, you know, arguably the trumpet was just sort of a gateway into his broader vision, which is what we're exploring with this project that's come, that we're bringing to Chicago Dizzy Spells. And so you kind of uh, touched on it. There's going to be like different moving parts on stage. Is there, uh, would you say there's like a, a story being told is there, or is it more of an exploration of Dizzy's artistry? Both, actually. There's a story being told. Uh, while we're giving tribute to the ancestors, including Dizzy Gillespie and his connection to Africa and his faith, the Baha'i faith that he got into in the late uh, 50s, in the early 60s. And also, we're just going to kind of seamlessly float throughout moods. presentation has really evolved over time so we're happy to bring this version of it to uh chicago and you mentioned uh tap dancing and that comes in the the form of your partner yes Brene ali she's going to be the tap dancer and, and vocalist and she's actually the brainchild of this uh particular thing And that it was her idea initially, and I kind of heard it, and I said, wow, that'd be really cool. Let's birth this thing together. And we've been doing that for several uh, years now, and it's, it's really a treat. And so I'm guessing the, the pandemic paused things for a while in the middle of the, that four years? Well, it paused this, the action on stage, but it didn't pause our creativity, if you understand what I mean. Sure, we sure. Continue. <laughs> yeah, we continue to create and continue to dream, and the vision grew even more. And we love our band because our band just kind of just dives right in with us. So we're happy that over the pandemic, although we didn't have a chance to uh, work it out on the stage, we got together and we practiced. So in a lot of in a lot of ways, we're a little more polished than we would have been anyway. So it's a, it's a sort of a blessing and a curse at the same time, if you will. Right, right. This uh, presentation of Dizzy Spells will take place Friday night, May 20th at Symphony Center in Chicago. And there's a, a an interesting local connection, uh, I think. I was reading your blog on your website, uh, sean-jones.com, and you, you posted about, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, you posted about being named chair of the Jazz Studies Program at the Peabody Conservatory and you wrote that your work at the conservatory will be dedicated to William Fielder, who was uh, an extraordinary trumpeter who spent a big part of his career here in Chicago. Was he a, a mentor of yours? 
oh my gosh, Prof was more than a mentor. He was like a big brother. Um, we spent 30 years together when I was at Rutgers, and he would always talk about the great principal trumpet player of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra for several years. I think he still holds the record of the longest um, principal trumpet player of any orchestra. I believe it was 51 or 52 years. I'm talking about the great Adolf Herseth and Vincent Chikowitz, who was second trumpet in that orchestra for some time, I believe starting with uh, Fritz Reiner all the way up until the 80s. <laughs> and so I, I actually feel that in some respects, I got lessons from Adolf Herseth and Vincent Chikowitz through prof. Right. And so many and so many of us had the great pleasure of working with prof as well, like Wynton Marcellus, Terrence Blanchard, the list, Terrell Stafford, the list goes on and on. And I was fortunate enough that I was one of his last students. Long live Prof. <laughs> and I'm sure over your career you've made stops in uh, Chicago. Any favorite memories from coming here? Oh, gosh. I mean, every time I get a chance to play at Orchestra Hall is a true treat. It's one of the big rooms in the world that still feels intimate. So I'm really happy to come back as a leader. I've been there with... Um, Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra. I was there with Lewis Hayes, a few other, um, I can't remember right now. It's been several times, but I'm just happy to be there with my own group at this point. And, I, and of course, it's always a, a treat playing some of the smaller venues like uh, the Jazz Showcase and the Green Mill. So that's always fun. Oh, yeah. I remember that back in the day, I would go down to uh, the what was it, the apartment on the south side? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I would go down there and play as well, man. So I love Chicago, and I'm happy to be back. Sean, thanks so much for making time to, to talk with us. Thank you. It's an honor. Can't wait to be there. That's Sean Jones, the renowned trumpeter, and his partner, Brene Ali, will be presenting Dizzy Spells at Symphony Center on Friday, May 20th, you can find more information at cso.org. And a quick reminder, if you enjoy the art section every week right here on WDCB, make sure to check out the program's website over at theartssection.org. You can find a bunch of additional content that go along with all the features you hear on the program, including pictures and links uh, of everything you hear. Also, you can find an archive of past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand. Check out theartsection.org. And you are listening to the art section. My name is Gary Zydek. I'm now joined remotely by the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Oh, good, good morning, Gary. Morning. Good morning. Instant summer in Chicago. <laughs> we were just talking about the weather, and here it is. Um, is that, does that mean the Cubs are winning yet? No, no, no. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Let's not get crazy. <laughs> Two characters reunite at their 20th high school reunion in Craig Wright's The Pavilion. The play is being presented by the Artistic Home Theater. 
directed here by ensemble member Julian Hester. Jonathan, last week we talked about uh, the play At the Vanishing Point, a work about memories. In some ways, uh, you say the pavilion tackles uh, some similar ideas. Well, I think so, yes. Uh, you know, they're the same, but different. Uh, the Vanishing <laughs> Point, which Carrie and I talked about last week, is a play about memories and the passage of time and the collective history within a, uh, a community, an urban community. And the Pavilion, which we're talking about this week by Craig Wright, uh, covers some, some similar themes, but completely different in, in the landscape. It's set at a high school 20th reunion, as you said, Gary, in Minnesota, where Peter and Carrie have serious unfinished business. He left her pregnant when she was 17, and he went off to college. Uh, they haven't seen each other since. He became a psychologist and has a history of broken relationships. She had an abortion and later married a decent guy, but a guy with whom she refuses to have a child. Uh, Peter and Carrie spend most of the evening avoiding each other. And then there's a third figure who is a narrator and also plays all the other former high school students, both boys and girls, among them, amusingly, the high school stoner, who now is the town mayor, and he's still a stoner. So, uh, you know, that's, that's the setting, and it's the same as The Vanishing Point, because we're talking about memories, people who have not gotten together for 20 years. Some have stayed in the same small town. Others have left, and they're remembering they're going over past history as each of them remembers it, perhaps differently, and we are within a community of a small Minnesota town. So in that sense, it's, uh, it, there are similar themes and ideas. Carrie, what do you think? I think, it's, yeah, there, there's, a ten, there's a tendency in the play to also try to get it more into, you know, the, the, yeah, the universe and whether we can turn back time. And, yes, I hope you are all, are all now humming along to that share song. I wanted to give you that earbug quite, you know, quite deliberately. I think that this is a play, yes, very much about memories, very much about could we, would we change things if we were given the opportunity to. Now, I'm probably dating myself with this reference, but one thing that the pavilion did remind me of is the film from the 1980s with Kathleen Turner, Peggy Sue Got Married, where a woman goes back to high, her high school reunion and is, in fact, thrown back into high school. So there's a little bit of a back to the future, this idea, would I change things if I could? No, nothing like that happens. It's not really a sci-fi play in the pavilion. There is a suggestion that perhaps, you know, the, the trajectory of time could be changed, but it really can't. All that we can change is ourselves, and all that we can do is decide whether or not we move on or we keep living in the past. Um, I think it should be noted the title of the play, The Pavilion, comes from the fact that the small town in Minnesota that is having its high school reunion is having it in that title structure, a little lakefront you know, setting, and that that itself is, is destined for destruction right after the, the class of, 19, yeah, of, of 1980 vacates the premises and in whatever state of inebriation and uh, anguish they might be in at that particular time. Yeah. So I don't yeah. think it's a, the deepest of plays, but I do think that it offers a nice character study, particularly, as you said, for Peter and, and Carrie, and a delightful chance for Todd Wojcik to show off a great, you know, a great facility um, and fluidity in embodying all the other characters that run in and out, and sometimes you know run interference for Carrie and Peter as they're uh, as they're trying to talk or not talk to each other, yeah. depending on what's happening in the course of the story. 
Uh, you know, I thought that the pavilion seems, upon looking at it, watching it, it seems like a bigger play than it actually is. And that's largely due to playwright Craig White's, Craig Wright's very elegiac way mm-hmm. with words in a lot of the dialogue, and also the highly entertaining role he's written for the narrator, played, as you noted, with sparkle and versatility and a wonderfully resonant voice by Todd Wojcik. And like the stage manager in our, our town, he establishes the entire universe of fine city Minnesota for us, quite literally from the Big Bang. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was taken, he carefully explains, it's a universe in which laws were created first, and then following laws, morality, love, and forgiveness. And that, of course, is precisely the journey that Peter and Carrie must take if they hope to achieve any kind of resolution. And they finally, late in the play, the last third of the play, they finally have a go at it. And I'm not going to spoil things by saying whether or not they succeed. (laughs) But the fundamental lesson is we can't go back. You can't Mm -hmm. go back. The universe does not allow us to go backwards in order to go forwards. Time moves only in one direction. But people, as you said, Carrie, people Mm -hmm. can start over again from the present moment. They can't correct what they've already done, but you can start over from the present moment. And if all the parties involved agree, then you can go forward, and the universe, in in a sense, is renewed. Uh, This is the metaphysics, if you will, of the play. The the universe is not reborn or remade, but it's renewed in better balance. So I think that's the, 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 uh, the metaphysical takeaway. I should also mention there is one song that is uh, performed during the course of the evening by John Mossman as as Peter. He was a member of a group called the Mustangs, and he is the last surviving member of that group. And he plays a song that was actually written by Craig Wright and Peter Lawton called Down in the Ruined World. And I thought it was actually a really terrific song. I thought, I would like a recording of this. Um, And Mossman delivers it quite well. So there is that, too. You know, it's not just about the relationships. 20 years on, it's a little early to be losing classmates, but in fact, many of us who have you know, been to reunions or have kept up with people have found out that we've lost you know, oh. people early or they've moved on. Or, you know, and I think that's the other thing this play is very smart about. Certainly there have been a lot. You know, the high school reunion is apparently a very rich source. <laughs> I mentioned Peggy Sue got married. There was Romeo Michelle's high school reunion, Growth Point Blank. Uh, I think that it could provide... That exactly that, this moment in time to look at past relationships, to look at past choices you've made, regrets, maybe resentments of people, people who maybe were very popular at one point who haven't really moved beyond, you know, the small town. Um, so I think Bryce has a really good handle on all of that. And yep. again, I, I, yeah, I agree with you, Jonathan. It, it seems like it's about more than it really is. But what it basically is about is strong enough on its own uh, and is not belabored at all in Julian Hester's, right. I thought, very well-acted production, so that I, I think it, it, it was it, it was quite enjoyable for me. Right. John Mossman plays Peter, and Kristen Collins plays Carrie, the other half of the relationship. We've already mentioned Todd Wojcik, who plays everybody else in the play. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, John Mossman and Kristen Collins really nicely inhabit their characters mm-hmm. and make them believable. Uh, Peter is, is more engaging and outgoing than Carrie, but both of them are intensely aware that everyone at this reunion is watching them to see what happens, because everybody knows how, how, that, how it ended 20 years ago. Uh, 
All three cast members and the director, uh, Gary, you mentioned, Julian Hester, they're all members of the Artistic Home Ensemble. Uh, and it shows, you know, in the, in the comfort level they have with each other and really their shared understanding of the play. Uh, the Pavilion, it's a good production of an appealing play. Uh, as I noted, I think it sounds more profound than it really is due to the magic of Craig Wright's language and really his sense of small people in a small town in a vast universe. Interesting. I think a lot of people look back at those high school days and wish they could go back and change some things. Um, but as you say, Jonathan, time only moves in one direction. Sounds like two recommendations from the dueling critics. The Artistic Home Theater's production of The Pavilion continues through June 5th. Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much. We'll see you next week. Oh, you're welcome, Gary. You're welcome. You're a supplement, you're a soul, you're a bandage, you're all. I can quit you, cut it out. I'm Gary Zydek, this is the Arts Section. Theater fans can get an up-close glimpse of new works that one day might end up on much bigger stages at a local festival that starts on Monday, May 23rd. The three-week New Plays Festival is presented every three years by an organization known as the Chicago Writers Block. So the Chicago Writers Block exists primarily to encourage new writers and new plays and to help get them formatted uh, to be able to see the light of day. This is Gerald Cole, a member of the Chicago Writers Block. It's, it's a big support group for new plays that are in development. That's been our key goal and key drive is to uh, help playwrights get plays out there. Cole is also the organizer of this year's New Plays Festival. This year's fest will serve as a return for in-person audiences and as a celebration of Chicago Writers Block's 30th anniversary. I recently caught up with Cole in Chicago's uptown neighborhood to learn more about the Chicago Writer's Block. So let's talk about what the Writer's Block is. It's a working group that meets once a month where playwrights attend and, and share what they're working on. Yeah, every month we have a uh, Chicago Writer's Block meeting. Uh, we were holding them in Evanston at a, at a location, but due to the pandemic, we've gone into the Zoom format. Uh, I hope that real soon we'll be able to get out of the Zoom format because it's just so much easier for people to work together and, and see the plays right there. But it's been a, a, a real good boon having the Zoom because it keeps everything going. But every, every uh, month somebody will bring, uh, several people will bring some scenes from a play that they're working on or maybe a short 10-minute uh, play if that's what they're working on. And then we read it as a group and critique what we think is good about it, what needs improvement, and uh, really help develop the plays. I'm sure every situation is different, but would it be something where a playwright might come back a few times with the same work, or is it like a one-time thing? No, I've seen, I've seen plays where we see it at one stage, and three years later we're still seeing the same scene, but now it's been completely rewritten. And it's, it's got, you can hear some of the things that you say in a play. Um, I think that this play, the character needs to be developed in this direction, and then the next time you see the play uh, scene, they've done that, and it's awesome. And then I know the pandemic has changed a lot, but uh, about how many people come to a, a meeting every month? We're getting a good range of 20 to 50 people, uh, but the core group 
is generally about about 20 people that will show up actively. If you're just tuning in, this is the arts section. My name's Gary Zydek. I'm talking with Gerald Cole. He's the organizer of the Chicago Writers Block's upcoming New Plays Festival. Chicago Writers Block has helped present over 250 new plays and musicals over the past three decades. Joanne Cook is the create as the uh, founder of the Chicago Writers Block, and she has been extremely active in it. She actually was an instructor over at National Lewis University in their writer, writing program, and she was she was one of my teachers. She's the one who got me involved in the program in the first place. Uh, I decided I was going to get my master's in creative writing. So how long have you been with the group? So I've been with the group for about I'd, I'd say eight years now. Um, and it's, it's been great. This is my third festival with them. And then in addition to these monthly playwright meetings, the Chicago Writers Block will produce these new work festivals every three years. And then these provide an opportunity uh, for plays that maybe are closer to being finished to get a live staged reading. Right. So it's a um, reader's theater. So it's a staged reading of each of the uh, plays. So the, the actors don't have to do a full memorization, which is good since it's just a one night that they get to perform. <laughs> you hate to put that much effort into a single evening. But they, the acting has always been brilliant. We've, we've done some really good casting. But then it becomes a stepping stone. So far, the writer's block has had plays and musicals by Joanne Cook, including Soul Sisters, Nesting Dolls, Sophie, Toadie, and Belle, and they've gone on to university tours and other productions, uh, including Off-Broadway. Uh, June Finfer has a show called Glass House, and it had an Off-Broadway production staged, but it was prepared here in Chicago through the Writer's Block festivals. Barbara Jorgens had developed a musical called Nobody Likes Retzina, um, and it went on to the Tuners Musical Theater Workshop uh, and when it eventually became a Chicago production as well. She's, now, she's also got a play called Café Sognon in the festival. It's a musical. And this year's New Place Festival is uh, special because obviously the organization celebrating 30 years. Also, it's kind of like a return of live audiences because of the, the pandemic. It's 10 plays over 10 nights. So it's, there are 10 nights. Um, it's a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday starting on uh, May 23rd, and then we go for 10 nights of that, and that will be at the Raven Theater on Clark. Uh, brilliant space, it's, just, it's, it's probably the best theater space we've put on a festival, I'm really, really excited by it. Uh, and every night there'll be a different production from a different playwright. Uh, two of the nights will be uh, shorts, so the playwright that is, has that night has picked a few short plays that they've written, and they'll produce it as a a series of short plays. There are four musicals in the uh, in this, which is exciting. We've had musicals before, but never four in one festival, so it's, it's very exciting. The very first night, the opening night, we originally were going to produce um, a play called Motherland. Uh, Motherland is based on a book by Fern Schumer Chapman that she wrote about her, uh, her actual journey. Her mother was from a, a European country that they had left when the Nazis came in. And she had, her mother had left as a little girl sent on her own to America. And she never talked about it. Now, in her older years, uh, she has decided to take her daughter, who's Fern, who wrote the book, 
to find out, discover their origins and, and what happened to the city and, and how they're received when they get there. It's a wonderful book that really tells you about the Holocaust from a very personal point of view. Uh, I, I recommend the book. Um, it, it'll be it's available on the, uh, it's available for viewing or seeing a, um, an information on the website uh, for Chicago Writers Block. Uh, so what they've done is they've taken this this beautiful play and they've um, a book and they've turned it into a play. But because there is so much interest in this play, we decided instead of putting it on as a play for the evening, we created um, we're, we're filming it and putting it on for viewing so people can buy a ticket just to view the play or they can go to the festival benefit on May, on May 23rd at the Raven Theater in which case they will get a free pass to find uh, one of the performances. There will be four days of, of um, performances that you can sign in for to see the, on, uh, see the online production. There will be, uh, for the benefit night, we're going to have um, a fundraiser. We will have songs from each of the different musicals to kind of preview it, and everybody will have an opportunity to meet all the playwrights ahead of time and kind of talk about the plays and see what they might be interested in seeing. So the ten nights are split with two nights of short plays, four nights of musicals, one night of a benefit, and then the rest of the nights are just regular straight theater. And so you mentioned uh, musicals, and I believe I think one of the musicals you wrote so will there be live music accompanying these these readings or will the music be there? So the way I've staged my musical um, and I think most of the uh, musical uh, playwrights have written the same same format is it will be done as if it were a full musical so when the music comes up there's a piano player who will play it and the, the actors will sing their parts um, you just won't get the full choreography. Uh, I've gotten a little sneaky because instead of putting a full chorus up there, since they're not singing and dancing anyway, I just have one guy singing all the chorus parts. Okay. So you'll get the full concept of a musical in terms of the singing and the acting, but you won't get the, you won't get the, the full dancing and all this because sure. it's a staged musical. So what's, uh, what's your musical about? My musical is called uh, A Stranger in This World, and it's about a person who's coming to the realization that she's a transgender woman. And she's also, of course, in a family where the father is running for Senate and very, very conservative. The, his sister is also very conservative uh, and a police officer. He's got a best friend who helps him through this when, when he finds out, but of course there's a bump in the road for that. The second act, he gets support. Uh, she gets support from another person, Christine Jorgensen, who is the first internationally renowned transgender woman back in the 50s and so it's the spirit uh, of her I don't want to say ghost of her but the spirit of her comes back and helps helps her through uh, this transition stage so when I was first reading about the, the new plays festival it made me think of how film festivals work where people can go to a film festival and see movies that haven't been released yet kind of a, a first look at something that maybe is still in need of distribution uh, of course, theater's different uh, than the film world. Theater's a uh, living, breathing thing that, that changes from night to night, but similar in that this festival is offering people an opportunity to see something that's really never been seen before. These, these plays are being staged for the first time. Exactly, exactly. We've seen the plays. We've seen scenes from the plays during our uh, monthly meetings. 
So we get a, a fair understanding of what's coming up, but for the majority of people, this is all brand new things that have never been seen. So you're, you're really previewing something new. Gerald, thanks so much. And thank you. This has been absolutely fantastic. I hope a lot of people show up because this is going to be exciting. I think a lot of these plays are going to not just come and go here. They're going to expand into much bigger things. That's Gerald Cole. He's the organizer of Chicago Writers Block's upcoming New Plays Festival. It's running on select dates May 23rd through June 14th at the Raven Theater in the Edgewater neighborhood. The festival will present six new plays and four new musicals from 12 local playwrights. The fest officially kicks off on Monday, May 23rd with a 30th anniversary fundraising event. You can find more information at writersblockfest.org. There are a number of photo books that highlight Chicago's breathtaking architecture and iconic landmarks. However, a new book titled Abandoned Chicago offers a vastly different but still fascinating view of the Windy City. Instead of photos of the Hancock Building, Marina Towers, and Cloud Gate, the book offers candid images of some of the city's most interesting but rarely seen abandoned properties. The Catholic St. Boniface Church and Bronzeville-based Michael Reese Medical Center are among the spaces included in the book. Self-taught photographer Allison Doshin is the person behind Abandoned Chicago. I recently sat down with her to talk about the new book and her interest in exploring neglected spaces. So you write in the, the book's introduction about your interest in exploring abandoned places. Mm-hmm. Where do you think that comes from? I guess growing up, I've just found a love for like spooky and creepy things. I started doing this by photographing and exploring old cemeteries in the area. The first one was a well-known Batchers Grove Cemetery. I'm sure you might have heard of it. Um, It's pretty well known for being an abandoned cemetery. Um, I guess Al Capone used to like dump bodies there and stuff. So it's got a spooky history. So explored that with my husband and took photos and was interested. So started researching other places online. Come to find out there are hundreds of thousands everywhere across the seas, even in the U.S. And we just started researching and going from there. And now it's turned into this. <laughs> right. I was looking through your book, Abandoned Chicago. I was curious about how you went about selecting mm-hmm. the places. So is there certain criteria you're looking for if you're going to go explore somewhere? Yeah, I mean, I tend to enjoy like the places that are starting to decay. Um, I don't really like the clean places or newly abandoned places, I should say, or vacant places. I like the ones that are older, that have history, that have beautiful architecture, um, you know, that are slightly decayed with nature or greenery coming in. I enjoy that. Um, And I try to put a little bit of both in my book for a variety. There's schools, there's churches too. Um, There's theaters that I put in there. So there's a wide range of places. And so you also write in your introduction how even as a, a teenager, you had this experience, and I was thinking, when I was in college, like a group of us like went out for a walk, and mm-hmm. we stumbled upon like a factory in this industrial area of Naperville, yeah. which in the suburbs there's not as many of these like abandoned right. properties, but every so often, and and just going inside, knowing people hadn't been in there for like a long time, mm-hmm. um, yeah, there was like this thrilling feeling, something uh, yeah. about. Uh, 
being in, I guess, maybe somewhere where you're, you're not supposed to be. Right. Um, so with you, so you, you find these places online or mm-hmm. do you like physically um, like just go out looking for online and a lot is driving around you do waste a lot of time just driving around looking for places that's mainly what we do um, me and my husband I that's who I mainly go and explore with and he's a photographer too um, but I would say driving around there's so many places especially in the city where everything's kind of so close together where you are bound to find something somewhere is it dangerous Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, you know, it's like you said, you're technically not supposed to be there. F- you know, floors could cave in. There's flooding. There's glass. There's a nail you could step on. I mean, there's so much that there's could like, go wrong. <laughs> there's like those physical structural issues that right. pose a safety risk. Have you ever encountered like a raccoon or a rat or something oh yeah for sure um raccoons that have lived in churches there's the one main church i feature saint stephen's it's in hyde park um that place is filled with raccoons (laughs) any like are they aggressive or um i haven't experienced them i know people who have who there's like holes in the floors and they come up through there Uh, sometimes so i i'm lucky i haven't experienced them before there (laughs) oh boy like critters like freak me out. So right. if I like went somewhere and like some rats showed up, that would be like. Yeah, yeah, not not into that. Or, you know, there's sometimes like uh, homeless people that right. live there, you know, squatters or people that are, you know, vandalizing the place. Like that's where it's like, okay, this is a little, you know, a little sketchy, but. Have you, en- so have you encountered squatters? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, some in the, you know, the more desolate neighborhoods in Chicago or wherever we're exploring, um, you know, there tend to be more people living in those types of buildings. Any um, police? Have you ever encountered like, a security guard or a police? We have. Yeah. We've, we've encountered the police a couple times. You know, they usually just, once you show them your camera and be and you're like, Hey, I'm just here to take pictures. Like we're not trying to mess up the place. They'll usually just tell you to leave and like, don't come back. Okay. So, <laughs> but there are people that have gotten arrested out there. So beware <laughs> if you're going to do this. <laughs> right. Right. So the, the spaces are obviously fascinating. Mm-hmm. Like the, um, you know, the churches, as you mentioned, and, and, even uh, like the funeral homes, just the architecture of these decaying structures is fascinating. But I also was mm-hmm. interested to see like what objects were left behind. Yeah. Like in some of these places, people, just, it seems like they just get packed up some things right. and just left a bunch of stuff. Yeah, it's honestly like some places they just closed the door and never came back. I mean, you know, stuff still in fridges, um, you know, lights are still on in some places. Somebody's paying for the power. <laughs> Um, I mean, clothing. There was you that know. one, I don't know, was it a church or something that like the library is still like all these books on the shelf? Yeah, that was a school. Oh, and school. Um, I believe it's demolished now, but it had a, the whole library was there. I mean, and they just demolished all of that. They didn't save it or, you know, put it to good use. But there's so many things that are left inside of these buildings that could be potentially reused. Um, but you know, for the most part, they're just sitting there decaying away with the building. And that's why I guess I like doing this to, you know, try and show people that, you know, these buildings still are beautiful, even they are, even if they are decaying, you know, there's so much history inside of them and the architecture in some of those churches. I mean, you're not, they don't make them like that anymore. You know, once, 
once those churches are gone, you know, they're gone for good. Nobody's going to see them anymore. Right. Yeah, some of these churches, just looking at the pictures, the uh, the stained glass is beautiful. Yeah. Does that usually just get demolished too, or do they try to take it out? Um, some of the churches, you know, they did have it removed the correct way, like they're supposed to before they close up a parish. Others, most of them, they're still sitting in there. And that's when they get vandalized sometimes. You know, kids throw rocks through them or they get broken somehow. Or they just get demolished when they completely tear down the building. And so I know every situation is different, especially Mm -hmm. when we're talking about churches and theaters, Mm -hmm. uh, funeral homes, they're all different. But what typically, what's your thought? Is just the owners just no longer have an interest in upkeep and they're trying to sell the property and just refuse to invest anything in it? Yeah, that or, you know, like if it's a, say, an old farmhouse somewhere, maybe the person who owned it passed away and their family just doesn't keep up with it. Um, that's how a lot of the homes are, you know, become abandoned, I guess you can say, in Illinois or anywhere, really. Or, you know, a property is foreclosed on. Um, you know, a church, the parish merge, you know, the archdiocese could have merged parishes and closed one of them, and it's just sitting there decaying like half of the churches in Chicago. So you and your husband are taking these pictures mm-hmm. and then, I'm assuming, posting on social media. Mm-hmm. How did this book project come about? Um, well, I there's a huge urban exploring following or community, I guess you can say, on social media. And with, you know, researching and finding more of people who do what I do, I have come to found that there are a lot of people who did books with the same publisher that I did. Um, they're called like the Abandoned Union Books. Um, so pre-COVID, I decided to submit a pitch because I'm like, I have so much information and photos I'd like to share with people, there's not an abandoned Chicago book, thought it was a good idea, Uh, submitted a pitch, and um, COVID happened, so they took a while to answer back, but they finally accepted my offer, and um, now I came out with the book, and it uh, was on shelves November 22nd. What was it like when you found out that they wanted to to publish it? (laughs) I was ecstatic. I couldn't believe it at first. I was nervous to do it. But in the end, it it turned out pretty good, I think. (laughs) What it's like the number one question you get from people who look at your book? Uh, Where is this? Yeah, (laughs) they want to (laughs) go. Which uh, that's the number one unwritten rule of urban exploring is you don't say usually where the locations Ah, are. Okay. Yeah, so it's it's very secretive. (laughs) All right. Allison, I appreciate you coming by to, to talk with us. Yes, thanks for having me. That's Allison Doshin. She's the photographer behind the new book, Abandoned Chicago, Decay in the Windy City. The book is available in several local bookstores and in all the usual online spots. You can check out Allison's work at her website, allisondoshin.com. You're tuned into the art section. I'm Gary Zydek. A Midwest landmark is the setting for a new indie horror film. The West Baden Springs Hotel was once known as the Eighth Wonder of the World. It resides about 280 miles southeast of Chicago, near the community of French Lick, a.k.a. Larry Bird's hometown. Dignitaries from across the globe would descend upon southern Indiana to stay at the Grand Hotel. 
Built in 1902, the structure featured the world's largest dome for the period and a 200-foot indoor atrium. The hotel fell into some troubled times after the stock market crash of 1929. Ownership of the property changed several times over the decades until the early 90s. That's when significant investments were made to preserve the landmark. And today, the West Baden Springs Hotel is a tourist destination again. The unique piece of architecture is also the setting for author Michael Corita's 2010 novel, So Cold the River. And now the book is a movie. And the story follows the efforts of a documentary filmmaker named Erica to uncover the story of a billionaire who has a mysterious past. Of course, things get dark as she begins to uncover stories from the billionaire's past. The movie stars Bethany Joy Lenz as Erica and theater legend Deanna Dunnigan as a local town historian. Filming took place in 2020, just before the pandemic shut everything down. And earlier this year, So Cold the River made its world premiere at the West Baden Springs Hotel. The film is currently available to rent through a variety of video-on-demand platforms. I recently caught up with So Cold the River's adapter and director, Paul Scholberg, to talk about what it's like making a movie in southern Indiana and to learn more about the history of the West Baden Springs Hotel. So Cold the River, the, the book has been out, uh, I think, a little over a decade now, and there's been this plan to turn it into a, a film. What attracted you to the, the project? I mean, I first of all, Michael Carita, he's a novelist, and he's, he's also one of the execs producers on this movie i love his work and i read the novel and was really drawn into there's so much going on in the novel but the the thing that really like his, his writing is great um and the thing about the the novel that really drew me in was first of all just the, these hotels you know i live in indiana and i only live a little over an hour away from them and i'd never been there once I saw these hotels, I, I knew that if any way I could get a camera into the <laughs> into those spaces, um, it was just going to be so, so exciting. And through, through Michael's work, I, I was really drawn into this idea of the theme of ambition in the novel that uh, really attracted me, that uh, I related to, and I think a lot of people relate to. And I thought it'd be really cool to make a horror, like supernatural horror film about ambition in a building it is so uh, such a testament to human ambition um, and, it, and its scope. Uh, this, this this amazing like six story glass dome in the middle of Indiana farmland. I thought that there was you know it, just, it seemed like such a great uh, metaphor <laughs> visually and such a great opportunity. Yeah, you you kind of alluded to it, but were you familiar at all with the uh, French Lick area, or had you heard of the West Baden Springs Hotel? When you live in Indiana, you hear about it all the time. Um, but I, you know, I've got a lot of, you know, I've got a lot of friends that gamble a lot. And so they go down there to the casinos. And I just always thought like, oh, it's a, it's a really cool looking hotel that happens to have casinos. I didn't know anything about it. I just, I knew people that had been there. I knew people that had gone there for like vacations and for like long weekends. And they talk about how amazing it is. But I just figured it's, it's you know, it's a hotel. How cool can it be? <laughs> uh, and then I went down there, and it was—it's uh, like nothing I've ever seen. It, there's nothing—it's it's really unique. Um, and to to be in such a small town in Indiana to have that that place is—it's just—it's hard to it's hard to make sense of in, in the best kind of way. 
Yeah, my wife, you know, she used to tell me that her family would take vacations to this giant hotel and resort in, in French Lick, Indiana. And all I knew French Lick was that it was the, the home of, uh, you know, where Larry Bird was from. And so exactly. I, I always just was kind of <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, I'm sure it's a great place. Uh, and then she showed me pictures and I was like, wow, that's crazy. I've never heard of this. This is radio for our listeners that don't have the visuals in front of them. The hotel structure specifically, well, there's kind of two properties, but specifically yeah. the, the West Baden Spring Hotel is this giant dome. What was it like filming once once you got a chance to, to get in there? Well, you know, the first the first reaction is, you know, because we're, we're a small, this is still like a, um, compared to other films, this is a very low-budget film. I'm an independent filmmaker, so we didn't have, you know, endless, uh, resources to go in there. So my first thought was, wow, what, this is going to be such a, a benefit to me to have this amazing structure. You just put a camera in there and everything is going to look great. And then I realized when you get into it, a large, amazing structure, you still have to light. You have to light <laughs> space. So it was actually the, the potential that this space uh, provided for filmmaking also created a whole new set of, of challenges just to scale up production to to meet the space um and uh that was uh it was a huge challenge for for the for, for everyone involved but it yeah that it was it was a lot more i didn't realize how much work it takes to making an amazing looking place look amazing in a movie if that makes sense and just uh you know we first as the audience we first see the hotel at nighttime and it's got this striking look on the inside and then you know a couple scenes later it's daytime and it looks completely different is that what it's really like at the the hotel is because is the dome like glass yeah so the, the dome is glass and so i mean this there's a couple things uh i i shot there's basically like one or two daytime scenes in this entire movie and i i wanted that just from the look i wanted that kind of darker nighttime feel but also, you can't really shoot in that dome during the day very often because you can't control what the sunlight's doing because it is a glass dome, and there's so there's so many ways. Normally, when you shoot inside of a house, you could put stuff over the the ten windows in the room you're shooting in, and you could control it. But when when it's a massive glass dome, you can't. There's nothing you can put over it. So um, yes, when you're shooting during the day, the the, the light. When you're there in real life, uh, at night it just takes this place takes on a vibe, and during the day it, it has it's it's like a complete it does feel like a completely different space. Um, it's really interesting how that works, and uh, I wanted to kind of really lean into that. And did I read that the crew essentially stay at the hotel while you were filming? Yeah, I stayed there for two months, <laughs> um, and we all did. We all stayed in this in this space for the entirety of production. And, and there was a period of time where they, they closed it down to the public for, for a couple of weeks when we were shooting like right in the dome. And so it was really strange to have to be in this space with only a very small amount of people and to have it like when they set the lighting for that place to, to make the lighting for our film, they had to leave it there the whole time because you wouldn't want to keep resetting up over and over. So there was kind of an eerie lighting to it. <laughs> and so you could, it's the only time you could be in that hotel and, and have moments where you're standing alone in a like a very eerily lit 
massive dome. That was a very strange experience. It really helped get in the mood, but it also, you know, if you have any sort of fear of the unknown just lurking in your head, uh, that that will bring it out pretty quick. It is such a unique structure. I was surprised, and maybe you can shed some light, that like a movie had never been filmed there before. Some scenes that never, like nobody's ever scouted that out for a location. I think that they have. Um, I think that they've been approached at, at times, but um, wrangling that space is, it's not really practical unless the hotel is kind of in on it with you. Um, it, it would, it's not the kind of place you could, to take advantage of the best parts of that hotel, you, you kind of need an access to it that you, you can't just get by popping in for a day. Um, it requires, it's, it's, it's a huge endeavor. So I, I could imagine that the hotel, the hotel was involved with this, um, film very much. Um, and they were, they, they were, they partnered with us essentially. And without that involvement, I don't think you could shoot in that space effectively at all. Like it's not, it's not like another film location where you, you, you get it for a little bit and you go in, you, you kind of had to, to own that space to take advantage of it. So I, I don't think it's practical for a film to shoot there unless like it, it just so happens that this, this best-selling novel really was about the actual hotel. So that, that made it a special thing, and I think that's what made the, the hotels want to be involved. When you were describing kind of the, the eeriness, it kind of was giving me uh, vibes of the, the Shining, just thinking of this giant property being uh, empty. But I guess you had, the, you had your whole crew with you there, too, so it was, yeah. it was just you. <laughs> It did. I was worried at times that I, they would find me in my room, like <laughs> nonsense, or, or, or throwing a tennis ball against the wall, and you know. Um, but I, I didn't chase anyone with an axe at any point in time. I don't think anyone beyond the normal, you know, ways you do lose your mind during the filming. I think everyone pretty much kept it together. But yeah, The Shining was. I mean, The Shining lurks over the book, and it lurks uh, over the film as well. It's you know, it's something, it's a film that I love. It's a novel that I love. So to, I, I, that was always present. You can't do grand hotel horror. <laughs> you, you have to acknowledge The Shining's influence. Right, right. And then uh, the movie is is out now. I was curious, and so I had to look back, but you filmed in uh, January and February of 2020. So obviously not knowing of, what was to, to come? That was just a kind of the, that timing worked out well. We yeah, we finished about two weeks before everything changed. <laughs> I think two, like two weeks after we wrapped, that's when the you know Rudy Gobert had it with the Utah Jazz, and then like two days later, the entire country shut down. <laughs> so it was very strange to live in a bubble of a film crew in a hotel in the middle of nowhere. Um, in the dead of winter, to come out of that bubble to go back into a bubble that uh, would last for, I don't know, 18 months, <laughs> um, and, and is still in, in weird ways popping up over and over again. Um, it's, it's, it, anytime you make a film, you kind of go into a quarantine, like a professional quarantine uh, um, in a normal situation. But to leave that and then to go into what happened in the world after that was kind of a crazy transition. And we were probably one of the last two or three films that actually completed before COVID hit, like anywhere, um, the way it timed out. Wow. If you're just tuning in, this is the art section. My name's Gary Zydek. I'm talking with director Paul Schulberg. 
about his new indie film So Cold the River that was filmed at the historic West Baden Springs Hotel in southern Indiana. So the book, I think it was like around 500 pages. Is that yeah, a, a big a, one. Yeah. Is that a, a challenge adapting it into a, a script for a 90-minute film? Yeah. Uh, a, a challenge is a nice way to put it. <laughs> uh, that was sort of the always the... That was going. To, that was the trick. Um, when I, I pitched my take to Michael on this story, and I knew that there was no way to, to like do a kind of one for one translation of the book into film. It would have to be like a ten hour limited series. Um, so I, I decided again. I, I kind of picked that theme of ambition that's very clearly in the book. The first line of the book talks about ambition. The very first line. Um, and I'm a big believer in in novels that that first line is the author telling everybody something. You know, it's, it's usually that first line is always very important. And I kind of keyed in on on ambition and decided that my approach was to to really um, honor the way Michael um, talked about the the space um, and, and the the lore around the hotels and the location, but really hone in on a very streamlined, very lean story about ambition that takes the um, generally takes the characters, but really runs them through this filter of ambition specifically. Um, and anything that didn't fit that left, and things that we added were just to really kind of highlight that theme over and over again. And so, movies kind of need to be about one thing, and books, you know, books can be books can have like seven different themes going on and all of these subplots. And a, and a movie, I, in my opinion, whether it's an adaptation or an original film, movies need to really be streamlined. And so that's that was always my take. And luckily, Michael really liked the take because I could have easily seen him just say like, "What are you doing? You're getting rid of all these characters, or you're combining three characters into one, or you know, all, all stuff like that 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 drives book fans of the book crazy." I, I knew that there was really no way if you love the book and that's, you want the book experience, the book is there. I recommend reading it. I've read it. I don't know, five, six, seven times at this point, this is kind of a, it's very much wanting to honor the book and more importantly, the authors, what's important to the author about the book, but uh, it's its own thing for sure. Right. Right. Great cast. Uh, Bethany Joy Lenz is the lead playing the, the central character, Erica. Uh, listeners will know her from uh, One Tree Hill and, and Dexter. And then there's a, a bunch of actors, uh, familiar faces that people will recognize. A personal favorite of mine is uh, Deanna Dunnigan, who's uh, in oh, a lot yeah. of Chicago theater. So it was nice to see her pop up. She's, she's incredible. And I, I was lucky enough to... Um, I saw her in August Osage County when it moved to Broadway, where she, you know, she won a Tony for yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I happened to catch that. I, I lived in New York for a stretch, and I had just moved to New York out of grad school, and that was one of the first plays I saw, and uh, I saw her in it. And then to be able to work with her, you know, like over over a decade later, uh, is just a real kind of full circle moment for me. It was like a huge a huge deal to be able to work with someone who is such a, such a legend. Um, you know, I got, I got my MFA in playwriting. So, you know, in, in the theater world, she is, 
she she's a legend and she is so great to work with too yeah i had the pleasure to interview her right when my show was getting started and she was uh, extremely down to earth yeah and so really enjoyed that uh, and, and a good. midwestern like a real midwestern you know like it's 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 one thing like actors always try to like that, that live their entire lives on one of the coasts and then they're like oh i'm gonna be a real rough and tumble midwestern and this is somebody that just like so someone from the midwest that spends a lot of time in the midwest and really like you didn't have to i didn't have to explain anything to her she got that I'm not going to get into too many details for our listeners because I think they should just kind of go into it with an open mind if they haven't read the book. It's a, a thriller with some uh, scary elements for sure. What are you hoping folks that aren't familiar with the book uh, who sit down and watch So Cold the River, what do you hope they take away from it? You know, the big thing is to, you know, for, for the first and foremost, I hope they're entertained. I hope that they jump when I want you to jump and I hope that they they feel that tension that we baked in there, and I hope they enjoy the film. But thematically, it's a film dealing with ambition and what can happen when you let your ambitions surpass your morality. And I think, you know, now more than ever, I think it's really important that we we kind of check our own ambitions and and, and make sure that what we're the things we're pushing for in our lives are not destructive to everyone around us. So let people kind of explore their own ambitions and see what where their lines are drawn and what they would and wouldn't do to achieve them but but ultimately i hope they i hope they feel the tension of the film and they enjoy it that's the most important thing and that's ultimately the job well paul i appreciate you making some time to to talk with me thanks so much thanks for having me this has been great that's Paul Schulberg. He's the writer and director of the new movie So Cold the River. It's available to rent via video on demand platforms. And you can learn more about the history of the West Baden Springs Hotel by visiting FrenchLick.com. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the program's website at theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the program. My name's Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then... I hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening. So hush, little baby. Don't.